Welcome to Lockdown Culture Episode 9 with me, Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm delighted that this week's guest is Nick Coleridge, the chairman of the VA Museum and the former head of Condé Nast. And as you're going to hear later on, he's pretty formidable, so he can hold the whole show together by himself. He reigns supreme over all essential reading, such as Vogue and Tatler. I'm not sure I meant to mention any of those on a Country and Townhouse uh, podcast, but he obviously had the best job on the planet, but he's now moved on to the next best job on the planet, which is chairman of the V&A. We're delighted to have him. Nick and I know each other very well, but Charlotte also knows Nick very well. In fact, what has slightly confused me is that my co-conspirator, Charlotte Metcalf, Nick keeps calling her Fruity. What is that all about, Nick? Now, when she was at Cambridge, she was called Fruity. And in fact, it's rather odd because there was a person called Fruity Metcalf who was a friend of Edward VII and was one of his big <laughs> members of the court. And I imagine that Charlotte began to be called Fruity at Cambridge. All my friends at Cambridge were in love with Fruity. Um, often simultaneously. And they used to talk about her all the time. They always say, God, bloody Fruity. I mean, yeah, I feel I'm so close with Fruity now. It's any minute now, it's all going to, like, really get going. And it never did because she had a London boyfriend. However, that is all by the by. I think she always Is that Fruity? Is that Fruity coming in? Fruity, I think you had a... Didn't you have a didn't you have a run in with Boris Johnson to do with your nickname Fruity? Oh, I did, I did. So I met Boris because he interviewed me years and years ago before he was incredibly famous, and he interviewed me about a film I'd made, and it was a very nice interview. The only problem was is that he called me Fruity all the way through it, and I looked <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. So I had to ring up Charles Moore at the weekend, who was then editing The Telegraph, and he was rather sort of grumpy about it and said that, really, you know, for me to be ringing up the editor of a national newspaper at the weekend to fuss about a nickname was a bit much. But then, as a matter of fact, Boris then did change my name back to Charlotte, and he said, just for once, Fruity, chivalry will prevail. How <laughs> lovely. I think that reflects very well. I think that reflects very well on Charles, as a matter of fact. I think it reflects well on Boris. It reflects well on Boris, yeah. It reflects well on all three of you. Yes. It's not the (laughs) first time that Boris has written two articles, but let's gloss over that. It's quite (laughs) enough about Fruity. We want to talk about Nick. Now, Nick, talk us through what is going on at the V&A. You're a wonderful chairman. You've been there for, I think, four years, five years. I think Uh, I'm in my fifth year. These are troubling times. Well, the museum is closed at the moment. It's, it's shut and it's locked. The only people who are there are the security guards who patrol night and day with actually additional rigour. But we're hoping that we can reopen uh, in the summer. Um, it's extremely complicated for all sorts of reasons that you, Ed, of all people would understand. And that is that um, we've been left with big financial challenges, as all the museums have, by this covid saga and we're also going to have the the further challenges of social distancing if if it's still happening and getting our plans through the unions and everything else but all being well we will be open um in the in the early summer probably the ground floor first um and then i i hope we can go back up to the old vna 
it's been a sort of incredible time for museums in Britain. I don't think people realise uh, that the number of people visiting them have soared over the last 10 years. Um, in the 1970s, when the great Sir Roy Strong was the uh, director of the VNA, they had a party when one million people came to the VNA in a year. And uh, this year, with Tristram Hunt as the director, we had 4,400,000 through the door. And I think it just says, says something about the way that the museums have perked themselves up and put on uh, more and more alluring exhibitions uh, to, to get people to come in and have widened, I may say, the, the draw of who comes. It's now a rather pleasingly mixed bag coming through the door, and we like that. That's super. And uh, I mean, one of the things that we've explored on this podcast is the sort of digital lockdown culture that people obviously, they can't physically visit your museum, so they have to access it <laughs> online i mean i'd love to hear a bit about what the vna is doing there but also i think more interestingly whether that will carry on after the pandemic it seems to me there's going to be a sort of hybrid much more of a hybrid existence now in a, in a good way that museums and indeed lots of cultural institutions will take their digital presence much more seriously as a way of uh, giving people an experience who can't actually come to the museum itself i think that's very true um, immense effort has been put in because the staff of the museum have had nothing to concentrate on, on the whole, but the digital presence. I think that the website of the VNA and the Instagram presence and the Twitter presence and all the other presences is far richer than it was. Um, and many, many people are now playing a part in it. And you can go on any day and see different curators and keepers talking about different parts of the collection. Viewing figures have gone up very much as a result. That said, um, I think that there's nothing like seeing something in real life. And it's the reason that we're so keen to be one of the first museums to open when we're allowed to reopen. And I think one of the reasons that people have taken to going to museums a lot is that we live as a society in smaller and smaller spaces. And when you go to a museum, you get these long distances, whether you're in the whether you're in Tate Modern or whether you're at the British Museum or whether you're at the V&A, there are big rooms and there's lots of space for in the cafes and in the restaurants and in the bookshops. And I think this is all part of the appeal, actually. They've become uh, rather like uh, social hangouts um, where people go and spend an afternoon and they go and look at three or four of the galleries and then they go and meet up with their mates and have tea. Um, or in the v case of the VNA, we now have alcohol in the members' room for the first time ever in 170 years. And, and it, so they've become um, much more egalitarian and much more attractive places for people uh, to spend their time. I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, and I agree with that. And I think the effort that especially the VNA has made with its shop and all the cafes and the courtyard and everything, I think it's wonderful. But we've got so much to pile through, Nick. So we really want to talk to you about fashion as well. But first of all, given that this is a podcast for our magazine, can you um, tell us a bit what you think is going to happen to magazines in general? Yeah, I, 
I'm more of an optimist than I'm a pessimist, although I'm also a realist on this. I think that there's been a trend which began in about perhaps 2015, 2016, um, for print to be under greater pressure. But it isn't equal across all titles. On the whole, I think the more upmarket magazines have fared better. Um, I think that there will be print versions of Vogue and Architectural Digest and Tackler, House and Garden Interiors, etc., etc., 40 years from now. But I think that the middle market of magazines has been shot already, really. Um, it's completely changed from 20 years ago. It always used to be that magazines in the middle market, Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, Glamour, when Condé Nast launched it, were the big players. And they were selling half a million copies a month at £4 a, a shot. Um, all of that has gone. So the middle market has been all but obliterated. The Upmarket is holding up very, very strongly. And so interestingly are the weekly magazines, magazines like The Week, The Spectator, The New Statesman, The Economist are all holding up pretty strongly in sales. And, it, and one or two of the decorating magazines, like The World of Interiors, it's as if digital had never been invented. With um, your magazine, the fact that it's delivered free through the door I think gives it a tremendous advantage. It comes through my door every month. I always pick it up. I always read it in the bath. I always toy with buying a new flat in Redcliffe Gardens or something, which uh, there always seem to be a lot of for sale. And there are enough interesting things to read that it keeps me going for two baths, which is as long probably as I ever devote to anything. I've read your brilliant autobiography, Nick, and just, I mean, I don't want to go, I mean, there's obviously one major flaw in the autobiography, which is that um, when you look in the index for the surname Vasey, it doesn't ah, actually yes. appear. The only, the only reference to me is the, is the arts minister constantly leaking to you who your competitors were for the chairmanship of the VA. Well, but I think you can I... see the extraordinary veil of discretion that I threw over that <laughs> moment. Nothing gave me more pleasure in that book, which comes out in paperback in three weeks' time. Having had no fewer than four printings in hardback, I feel completely pleased by what the... What does that mean in terms of sale? 20,000? I think that they've printed 26,000 in total, That's which brilliant. probably means they've print, sold about 20, would you have thought? Maybe a little bit yes. more. Yes. It's, yeah. it's somewhere, around, somewhere around there. And then the, and then the paperback is about to appear. But the thing that gave me incredible pleasure was the index, which I did <laughs> myself. It simply gave me the greatest pleasure to do those funny things when you have um, little extra facts in the index, you know, so it would say, as it were, um, David Cameron, picnic on hanging rock, um, semicolon, David Cameron, uh, his views on the Queen or something. I spent hours doing it. So can we talk a bit about um, fashion now, Nick? Love to. I mean, if you, I, th I think the key thing, if you, if you want to know what I think is changing. I think this the Covid saga and the aftermath of the Covid saga have simply made everyone and everything reevaluate how they approach things. Um, and fashion is 
part of that. By way of background, the fashion industry over the last 20 years has had the most extraordinary um, moment and has been for many of the brands enormously profitable. You only need to look at the profitability of LVMH and the Gucci Group and others over the last 10 years and you can see that. In a way, though, I think it was heating up and up and up to the point where they were doing so many different collections a year. The big brands, if you take somebody like Dior, Chanel, etc., they were doing two couture shows a year, two major ready-to-wear, enormous ready-to-wear shows with perhaps 200 models and audiences of six and a half, seven thousand people and flying in celebrities to sit in the audience and the extraordinary expense of the setting and the music and all of it. And I think then that was followed by the cruise line and then there would be separately the handbag line, the the, the shoes line, all of it. I think what we are going to see is a, um, a, a quite a big cutting bag. The last six months have been terrible for fashion with the stores all closed just when all the clothes had arrived in the stores. And what they're going to do with those now, I do not know um, because they have not been able to sell more than five percent of them and already the next season's clothes are, are being prepared and made and ready to be shipped all around the world and don't forget it's been a simultaneous uh, shutdown all around the world because of the pandemic and there have been intense losses in all of these brands and I think when they come back there's going to be a far smaller and simplified offer. I would think the cruise lines are unlikely to survive. I think quite a number of houses will reevaluate whether they really have to do couture. I think they will try and keep ready to wear um, in the same way. But I think that a lot of shows for the smaller secondary designers will become digital and will be online. I mean, it's going to be less sexy. There's no question about it. Um, but needs must. If ever you've been as I'm sure many people to listening to this have in their lives, to a really major fashion show when you see 200 models coming down the runway and you recognise probably 60 of them because they are such famous supermodels. It is the most exhilarating sight and the music and the, the beauty of the models and the kind of sense of impetus that it all brings is, is frankly thrilling. But I'm pretty sure that this is going to be the moment when it's, when it's all going to change. And I think the same thing is going to happen, um, I may say, in the newspaper industry and in the magazine industry. Um, now that everyone has discovered that it's possible to bring out daily newspapers without a single member of staff in the office... I mean, in the case of the Daily Mail and the Times, there's nobody in there at all. Everybody's working from home, from the editor to the production people to the sub-editors. I think people are going to question whether they need large headquarters buildings. Do they really need them? Is it necessary Nick, to... Nick, yeah. before, we, uh, before we leave fashion behind, I just want to remind you that I was the Minister for Fashion for six years. Let and, nobody uh, ever forget that. One of the, the highlight of my year, the highlight of my year, when I was in opposition, I used to be on row double Z of the Burberry Fashion Show. 
when I became Minister of Fashion, I was on row double A, the front row, and the person sitting next to me every year was Nick Coleridge. And well, as, the models, happy days. as yep. the models, as the models <laughs> sashayed down the catwalk, this chap, Nick Coleridge, would turn to me and say, oh, that's my goddaughter. Oh, that's my goddaughter as well. <laughs> well, that's why that serves you right for going. Serves you right for going to Burberry. <laughs> I was thinking only the other day that, uh, in my Condé Nast days, the British company alone would have forty editors at the fashion shows, spending a month flying between New York to London, that Milan, Paris, and that was only the British company. We could go on forever. I wanted to ask. Um, one quick question. We got slightly diverted by Fruity from talking about magazines onto fashion. But because one question I want to ask you about digital magazines, because the reason I mentioned your autobiography, because there's a, a wonderful bit about how important it is to choose the cover of the magazine. You know, you, you would have one face on yes. one month and the sales would double. You know, th that kind of attention and, and your conversation about, you know, who was reading what on the train, that's going to change how you... How you do the job of a magazine editor is going to change. I think it is. It, I mean, it is going to change. There's no question about it. And I think probably my prediction is that in 10 years time, quite a lot less money will be spent on creating covers because they won't be quite so necessary because people will have... Um, because people will be consuming in a in a different way, um, but when in the days of of print, which still of course exist, and I and these very conversations are probably happening literally right now about for, amongst those who are choosing the front covers of Bazaar and Vogue, etc. People readers are quite interesting in the way that they think about magazines because most people, most readers have a portfolio of about five titles that they sometimes buy. Um, and so they would regard themselves, let us say, as a Vogue reader. But it doesn't mean that they always buy Vogue. They might buy nine out of 12. And they would also be a little bit of a Harper's Bazaar reader. And they might buy four out of 12. And then sometimes, if they see a very sexy cover, they might buy... L instead, or they might buy Tatler. Um, so people are a little bit promiscuous, but within a very defined list of magazines that they might potentially buy. So that was the reason that we put such care into trying to get the, the best cover and the writing of cover lines. We used to test um, all of the cover lines in advance. Um, so that teams of people would be given four different versions of the same cover line. For example, it could say, Ed Vasey, Minister of Arts, exclusive interview. Or it could say, what makes Ed Vasey so sexy? See inside. Or it could say, is Ed Vasey the next Prime Minister to be? And then we would give it to 100 readers and they would overnight choose which they thought was the best. We didn't always go with their choices, but uh, we were certainly interested in their choices. And if 90% if, if preferred one, then we nearly always went with that one. And we did the same thing with the images. You might get a far away picture of Victoria Beckham, let's say, and then you'll get a closer up picture or, or you might get a, a side view picture. And we would ask 100 people or 500 people which they preferred. And if 
450 of them preferred the close-up face, it would be quite likely that the editor would go with that one um, because it told you something, I guess. Herd, herd immunity or whatever it's called. But on the whole, Nick, when we were talking earlier, you said that you feel incredibly optimistic about culture generally and think that it's going to come out of this pandemic stronger than ever. Well, I certainly think that the, that um, that people are going to continue reading magazines and continue to read newspapers, all regardless of which platform they read it on. Um, I, but I think there's a hunger for that kind of thing, and always will be. I have. I, I think that the fashion industry will take a little bit of time to recover this time because it's been so uh, incredibly challenging for them. But I think that there's an extremely deep interest in in fashion across the world. Um, and I think it will uh, will definitely revive. As for museums, I think that they hold a quite different place now in the public psyche. Um, they were once seen as a place that were like a repository of rare objects and they were studied by academics and they were uh, looked at uh, and visited by a highly intelligent but probably rather more niche audience. Exhibitions that are both scholarly and trailblazers, big blockbuster shows, um, we need them both. The blockbuster shows remind people that museums exist and they come in vast numbers. Half a million people are paid to see the recent Dior exhibition at the VMA and it was intensely profitable and helped pay for the renovations of some of the galleries uh, from the profits. But I think that people now think that these are that the museums are speaking to them much more widely than they did. These shows like Alexander McQueen, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, all those kinds of exhibitions um, have just drawn such enormous audiences and they allow us to continue doing um, exhibitions of, of, of scholarship in, in a more traditional manner. For example, the V&A has two very fine shows coming up soon, one on Persian art and one on the history of the Mughal and Mughal India. They're both going to do extremely well, but they're aimed at a slightly different audience to the 400,000 people who queued up all night to see the Pink Floyd show. And I think in this diversity of subject matter lies the um, glory of the British Museum, uh, the British museums generally. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the London museums are very much setting the pace globally at the moment. Um, and I think that people are watching what's happening in London from the Louvre and from um, the Uffizi and even, I would dare say, from the Met sometimes and thinking that there's a sort of excitement that's happening, not just at the v but across the London museums, um, which is impressive. Well, what a really great positive note to end on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And I know that you have yourself not been well during the COVID pandemic, and it's good to see you sound fully recovered and firing on all cylinders. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed to you both. Much love. Bye. That's all for this week. Next week, episode 10 will be the last episode of Lockdown Culture. But I'm delighted to say this won't be the end of Charlotte and me doing a podcast. We've decided that as lockdown 
comes to a staggering end, uh, we're going to move on to just a general podcast about what's going on in culture uh, over the next uh, few weeks and months and even years, who knows, uh, because we want to change the emphasis from you experiencing culture online and at a distance to hopefully you experiencing wonderful cultural events in the flesh, in person, as we move beyond the coronavirus. Absolutely, Ed. And as lockdown eases, it's going to be more and more important that we all get out there to support as many theatres, museums, galleries, opera houses, music venues and concert halls as we possibly can if they're all going to survive. So after that very comprehensive and fascinating overview from Nick Coleridge, next week we'll be looking at an amazing project to commemorate lockdown and then talking about ways we can all start getting our wonderful British culture up and running again. In the meantime, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. But for now, thank you all very much for listening and goodbye from Ed and goodbye from me.